I'm Paul Santamena, and this is A Story Already Begun, a podcast where I use the adventures of Gus Froman, my great-grandfather, as an aperture into the cultural history of America and into the question of how our ancestors influence our own identities. When we last saw Gus, it was 1864, he was 10 years old, and he was working as the office boy of Horace Greeley, the powerful editor of the New York Tribune. Later in life, Gus wrote that everything Greeley said to him was forever etched in his mind, so we can imagine that what Gus heard from Greeley was deeply influential. And something he surely heard about was a Fourierism, a French philosophy of social reform that Greeley helped popularize in America. In his 30s, Gus entered into a project and then ultimately a family that had deep roots in Fourierism. I like to think that Gus was attracted to the project and the family thanks to his early exposure to Fourierism through Greeley. It seems reasonable, and besides, the story of Fourierism in America is both interesting, at least to me, and certainly obscure, so I'm going to dedicate this episode to exploring it. Fourierism was an intricate system of sweeping social reform introduced in France in 1803 by Charles Fourier. Fourier had vast intellectual ambitions despite very limited formal education, and his goal was no less than to solve the ills of society through the application of a single unified theory inspired by the work of his heroes Rousseau and Darwin. He found no shortage of social and economic problems to resolve. He reported seeing poor people starving on the streets and walking just a few blocks to find food rotting at the docks, waiting for a buyer. In his view, businesses were inherently corrupt, exploiting workers who toiled for meager wages in appalling conditions. Women were sentenced to domestic drudgery their entire lives. Children were more likely to fall victim to disease than receive an education. Drunkenness and violence pervaded everything. In short, Fourier saw society as a greed-driven system of inequity that allowed a lucky few to exploit everyone else, creating widespread misery. He presented his theory as a scientifically drawn blueprint for an entirely new society built on communal living and work and resulting in universal prosperity. When it first appeared, Fourier's theory was met with, at best, confusion, and at worst, derision. That's among those who noticed it at all. It really took a good two decades before it caught on in France. Not surprising since it was quirky, sometimes fanciful, and written in nearly impenetrable language. The theory was based on Fourier's discovery of the scientific law that governed all human behavior and activity, just as Newton's law of gravity governed the behavior of objects. Fourier's law is both simple and incomprehensible, and here it is. Passional attractions are proportional to destinies. Yep, passional attractions are proportional to destinies. I think what Fourier is trying to say here is that, that people's deep-held interests define their true path in life. Fourier, who had his own passion for enumeration, identified 12 distinct passions. Some of them govern our sensual desires and physical needs. Others are social needs, and still others are attraction to things like variety and intrigue. Fourier believed that if we could live a life driven by our own personal passions, we could realize our destinies, and we'd be personally fulfilled and even usher in a whole new era of human development. 
The problem was that society got in the way. What Fourier called with a sneer civilization had created economic and social structures that quashed the unfettered pursuit of our passions, perverting our inherent goodness and giving rise to various evils and social ills. However, if we could systematically design the social, economic, and physical structures to support our passional attractions, we would overcome civilization and usher in a new era of peace, equality, and prosperity that was the destiny of all humanity, a phase of human development that Fourier called harmony. Okay, so that all seems pretty utopian, but not totally crazy. Fourier, however, expanded his vision of harmony to include elements that were a lot harder for most people to swallow. These included a promiscuous, free-love lifestyle, the total eradication of disease, humans evolving tails, oceans turning to lemonade, and the copulation of planets. Despite the weirdness of portions of his theory, Fourier was incredibly rational about how to build harmony. The first step was to take two people from each of the 810 personality types that he had derived from his passional system and have them create a three-mile square domain made up of fields, gardens, orchards, woodlands, and build at its center a massive but elegant structure that would house everybody comfortably surrounded by workshops and storehouses. This complex was called the Felonstair, or in English, the Phalanx. To accomplish this and sustain the Phalanx, you needed to organize your 1,620 future Harmonians into work teams, according to their passional attractions. Those attracted to cultivating apples, for example, would be organized into a large team called a series, the series would be split into smaller teams called groups, each of which would focus on growing a specific type of apple. But to satisfy the passion for variety and help render labor attractive, phalanx members would change their roles, often following their passions from apple growing to blacksmithing or accounting. So this notion of attractive labor was central to Fourier's system. Make labor attractive, and you'd boost productivity to unimagined heights. Then, the profits of the many phalanx enterprises would be split by its members based on the amount of labor and skill they contributed. Members would also derive income from their ownership shares in the phalanx, earning annual interest. In this way, competition would be eliminated, and cooperation would win the day, while encouraging hard work and investment in the capital needs of the community. Fourier believed that once people witnessed the social and economic success of the first phalanx, they would spontaneously organize and fundraise to create new ones, and the planet would eventually be covered in more than two million phalanxes associated together in a kind of collective world government that would supplant civilization with harmony. Now, as you might imagine, the amount of capital needed to even begin work on a single phalanx was daunting. But that didn't dissuade a few idealistic young engineers in France from trying. A phalanx designed for 600 people was started there in 1830, but ran out of money before it could be completed. So Fourier blamed that failure on the incompetence of the organizers and the small scale of the project, and totally disavowed it, along with other attempts to trial small phalanxes. So it appeared that Fourierism would remain an unrealized theory forever. Until, that is, the arrival in France in 1831 of one 
Albert Brisbane, an American traveling Europe in search of intellectual enlightenment. The historian Carl Guarneri has written extensively about Brisbane in his definitive history of Fourierism in America. Here's Professor Guarneri. Albert Brisbane was the son of a landowner and merchant in, in uh, Buffalo who actually inherited a, or stood to inherit quite a large fortune. And because of that was, was kind of spoiled, you know, got in his head that he was cut out for great things, caught the travel bug and decided very early on that he was going to go to Europe to uh, get an education and uh, find out the answer to all the big questions. And he was like a great sponge. I mean, he did not really have any original ideas, but he was he was so earnest in his seeking and so absorptive, you know, once he found something he got interested in, that he um, turned out to be a great uh, disciple. He traveled for a while with the American sculptor Horatio Greeno, and Greeno called him a philosophical windmill, you know, who sort of tilted toward whichever way the wind was blowing. So he is a kind of barometer of so many of the different intellectual currents that are going on in Europe. He understood them on a fairly superficial level, um, but but he was so earnest in fig in looking for the answer, you know, to to big questions, that when a San Simonian friend gave him a copy of one of Fourier's books. Um, he was astounded by it in a positive way, <laughs> not thinking it was the emanation of a disturbed brain, you know, as one American had reacted. And um, he began to see in it some keys to bettering human organization. So he typically, uh, he went straight um, to Fourier himself and uh, tried to get the word from the master. Fourier was a, at that point an embittered, bachelor who was angry about the lack of attention to his brilliance and his system and paranoid about everybody plagiarizing his work, paradoxically. No one was paying attention, but everyone was plagiarizing. But Brisbane paid Fourier. Uh, he knew how to get, get to him. He paid him for two lessons a week to be tutored in the system. And when he was ready to come back to the United States, he brought with him a sort of consumer-friendly package of, of Fourier's ideas. This is where Horace Greeley comes in, uh, because Brisbane came back and paid Greeley for a column in the New York Tribune, just as the New York Tribune was becoming the go-to newspaper, or at least one of the go-to newspapers for New York, and starting to get something of a national reputation, too. There on the front page uh, was Brisbane's column about association, which was the name he settled on rather than Fourierism, which was unpronounceable. So association became the sort of user-friendly name that the Americans adopted for their movement. And Brisbane's column ran for over a year, making it sound like a simple elixir that you had to swallow and all our, uh, all our troubles would go away. He was not a profound thinker, but he was a very shrewd propagandist making plans for cooperative living sound utterly simple and foolproof. And on the other hand, very shrewdly indicting the current system for all its inefficiencies, its insecurities, you know, all the, the ups and downs of the business cycle, the materialism. Okay, to give you a sense of Brisbane's style, here's an excerpt from one of his Tribune columns. 
the business world is an area of conflicts, overreaching, and fraud, a school for the most callous selfishness and duplicity. Its spirit has rendered business tact, craft, and petty cunning the most important of qualifications, made the practice of truth and justice impossible, degraded the higher faculties of the mind, sunk the pursuits of art, science, and useful industry below the mere ability of money-making, set up wealth as the standard of excellence and respectability, and rendered its acquisition a mania, to which all the higher and more noble aims of life are sacrificed. Such are results which are growing out of the present system of society, as it is advancing to maturity. With the spectacle of them before us, should we remain satisfied with the political, administrative, and other partial reforms which occupy the public attention, or undertake a reorganization of society, which is the grandest undertaking that any age can offer? Specifically, what Brisbane offered was the image of a magnificent social structure built on the pastoral ideals of America. And this image was literal. At his lectures, he displayed an engraving of the idealized phalanx. It sat in a valley near a wide river, nestled among rolling hills, and surrounded by the requisite farm fields and orchards. The structure itself resembled Versailles, but bigger and more sprawling and adorned with a bell tower. A network of porticos connected numerous courtyards filled with gardens. Then across a huge public square from this central building sat all these workshops, barns, outbuildings, all there to house all the money-making enterprises of the phalanx. Now, he assured his audience that inside the main building, which he called the edifice, residents would enjoy every convenience, like central heating, a shared laundry, and fine cuisine served to them in opulent dining rooms. So in his lectures and, and in his columns, Brisbane took great pains to disabuse his audience of the preconceptions that they might have had about association based on experience with previous utopian movements in the U.S. So here's kind of a FAQ that I might have come up with. Would association do away with private property? No, 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 said Brisbane. It held sacred the right to property, with every member owning shares in the association. Large shareholders could live in luxury apartments, and smaller shareholders would live in more modest but still comfortable surroundings. Would association do away with marriage? Certainly not. It merely offered cooperative living, which was a more efficient and economical way for families to organize themselves than in the traditional isolated household. Would association do away with religion? Certainly not. Fourier's theory was founded on divine laws, and he was a devout believer in the immortality of the soul, which he claimed actually to have scientifically proven. Would association do away with the class structure? Nope. It would merely create the conditions for all classes to work and live cooperatively, not competitively. And all people, regardless of wealth or gender or age or religion, would enjoy fulfilling work, a vibrant social life, artistic expression, and the pursuit of knowledge. Well, all white people, that is, because association was focused on doing away with wage slavery in the North and had a serious blind spot about chattel slavery in the South. Horace Greeley quickly departed from his initial role as the mere publisher of Brisbane's propaganda to become a full-throated advocate for association, which has seemed odd to many observers. It's been something of a puzzle as to why Horace Greeley, who was devoted to the Whig political party, and in some ways 
was a somewhat conservative guy, um, why he got so interested in Fourierism. I, I don't, you know, necessarily have the answer, but but I do think that because Fourierism was so stripped down by Brisbane, and I think really stripped it down even further, you know, to basically a plan of cooperative living and labor, um, it, it was very appealing uh, to Greeley. He was very interested in helping out workers. Um, he came from a very modest Scrabble New England background himself was a printer, um, but he was against strikes and conflict between capital and labor. And Whig ideology was that there was a harmony of interests between the workers and their bosses. The Panic of 1837 sort of shattered all that. You know, as soon as um, uh, prices went down or business got bad, the workers were laid off or fired, and really was looking to, I think create conditions where there would be a harmony of interests um, between labor and capital. Um, and you can think of his version of Fourierism as sort of cooperative capitalism, you know, joint stock organizing. Everybody has a share in the business. They live together, but they can have separate apartments. They pool their resources. And if this is one option for struggling workers or farmers, I don't think really tied it to the transformation of all society um, the way the way the Fourier's true believers did, thinking that this was, in fact, going to be the way all of society was organized. But I think he saw it as an option um, and an attractive option for workers. So I think it was that kind of reconciling, peaceful way to achieve his version of, of economic justice, you know, that attracted Greeley. So with the help of Greeley and other allies, Brisbane brought association to the public eye. Now, perhaps in other periods of history, it would have been entirely dismissed as a fantasy. But in this time and place, the U.S. in 1839, association caught fire. Two factors served as kindling, so to speak. First was the economy. The country was in a multi-year depression in the wake of the Panic of 1837. So business failures were common. Unemployment was rampant. The second was the unusual openness during this period to social reform and a general hunger for spiritual uplift. Brisbane's propaganda provided the spark to this kindling, and suddenly dozens of groups were on board, planning to create their own phalanxes. So there was this mad rush um, to form these small communities um, that was really not controlled by Brisbane or anybody else. It was a local effort where people read his column, um, started reading other versions of Fourier's ideas, and local churches, mostly liberal churches like Unitarians, would organize meetings or local mechanics who were thrown out of work by the panic would, would call for a meeting. And lo and behold, 200, 300 people would organize a meeting. And right at that meeting, they'd They'd, they'd, they'd drop a constitution, throw in a hundred bucks each, you know, and, um, and start looking for land without screening members very well, without um, thinking about where good land might be or what, what products might work, without really setting up enough 
of a, a plan to succeed. Um, so it's, it's not a coincidence that many of these were slapdash communities that were overrun with residents and applicants, couldn't even house them in many cases. Sometimes they ended up living in huts or tents while they built a, a bigger dwelling as the first thing that they should do. So it's no coincidence they were very haphazardly organized and very few of them lasted more than a few years so that Fourierites became parodies as Fourierites by their critics because that's about how long most of the communities lasted. They had all kinds of problems. Internally, they, as I said, they didn't screen members very well. They got overrun with members. They bought too much land and got themselves in debt. They didn't have enough farmers. They had craftsmen and mechanics and preachers, but they didn't have enough people who really knew how to farm the land. Sometimes they just had to get that from books. They had religious disputes because all religions were welcome. There was no religious creedal test for coming in. So what do you do on the Sabbath, for example? Do you keep the Sabbath? Is alcohol allowed on the site or not? All these disputes that were grounded in religious differences were supposedly going to be reconciled, you know, in Fourier's plan. But I don't think he had planned for those kinds of sectarian lifestyle disputes that sort of invaded uh, the phalanx. And they overpromised what, what would happen. So, so they weren't profitable in the beginning, as you might imagine. They could be undermined pretty easily by a few lazy workers or a few um, people who sort of took control and saw it more as their personal domain and maybe bought out the mortgage and they were the real owners of the community. So internally, there were all kinds of problems that relate to the haste and I think the utopianness, I guess I would say, you know, of the plan that everything would work out if we just organize according to Fourier's dimensions. And of course, none of them could meet Fourier's dimensions, which were vast. And so you could have a situation where people could say there never really has been a trial of Fourier's ideas because they never got 1,620 people together in this grand Versailles-like building. Well, that's true. But their experience suggested that even that wasn't going to work if somehow that could, that could happen. Now, externally, prosperity started to come back to the economy. Prospects started to look better than in these failing, struggling, small-scale, unprofitable, crowded little social experiments. Between 1842 and 1846, about two dozen phalanxes were founded in places including New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. All of them were abandoned by 1856. Thanks to this history, American Fourierism is remembered now as just another utopian failure. But there were places where the promise of association was realized, if only briefly. One such place was Brook Farm, the small transcendentalist community founded in 1841 that adopted a Fourierist structure in 1843. The journalist Charles Dana, looking back on his days at Brook Farm, says that the dream of attractive labor was realized. He wrote that each person chose what he wished to do, what groups he would work in, and none tried to shirk. There was more entertainment in doing the duty than in getting away from it. And to some extent, life for women, at least young single women, could be more fulfilling in a phalanx than in mainstream society. 
They could enjoy a freer social life and a more relaxed work schedule at a phalanx than, say, living in a small town and working at a mill. The young single associationist Mary Paul said she adored life at the North American phalanx in New Jersey. Communal living meant she had constant companionship from other young women and men, and she could earn a decent wage working as little as six hours per day. Where Fourierism has had its biggest influence, however, is not in the life of any one member of a phalanx, or in how labor is organized, but in how approximately one and a half million Americans own property today, that is, in housing cooperatives. The first cooperative apartment buildings appeared in New York City in the 1880s. They were imported from France by an architect named Philip Jean-Jean Hubert. Hubert's father, also an architect, had worked with Fourier to design the first experimental phalanx in France, the one that never really got off the ground and Fourier disowned. For his co-ops, Philip Hubert adopted the joint stock ownership model of the phalanx and attempted to recreate the diverse population that Fourier said was essential to a satisfying community. He included studio spaces for artists, modest apartments for working people, and large, luxurious apartments for the wealthy. All residents, no matter their wealth or social standing, had access to common amenities and spaces. Hubert's first co-ops ultimately failed financially, much like the phalanxes that inspired them. This was probably because rich people in the early 1880s could still afford to buy private homes in New York City, and too few were open to sharing their living spaces with the masses. Some of Hubert's buildings still stand today. The most famous is the Chelsea, originally built as an artist-friendly co-op and then turned into a hotel. A hotel that has become legendary as the home of some of the most creative artists, writers, and musicians of the 20th century. It may be the most colorful and culturally significant legacy of Fourierism. But really, all co-ops of New York are built on Fourierist foundations. Even the most luxurious and exclusive are descendants of the phalanx. You may be wondering how Gus Froman plays into all of this. This podcast is nominally about him. Well, Philip Hubert involved Gus in the whole Chelsea project, and later became his father-in-law. I'll get into the details of that story in a future episode. Coming up next time, we leave Utopia behind and return to Gus's youth, just in time to see him run away from home. This show is produced by me, Paul Santamena, with music written and performed by Jim Balabushko Ray. Special thanks to Professor Carl Guinari for appearing in this episode. If you'd like to learn more about American Fourierism, he wrote the book on the topic called The Utopian Alternative Fourierism in 19th Century America. Thanks for listening. <laughs>